0: Content warning. This episode contains difficult histories and personal narratives that could be traumatic for some listeners. Content includes violence and racism. Please be advised. Imagine transporting yourself back in time. What would it be like to walk the streets of a specific historic period, talk to the people that inhabited it, and have a complete sensory experience? In the United States, people have such an opportunity. Living history museums provide built environments which explore certain historic periods and are inhabited by costume interpreters called living historians. This practice can be extremely impactful. However, it also has its complications. On today's episode, we will explore this practice in the USA through four institutions of varying sizes. So come along as we transport ourselves into the past on the Kalamazoo Valley Museum interpretive hour.
1: My name is Gray Wilson. My name is Jacob Wolfe. And to begin our discussion today, I'm going to talk about one of the country's oldest living history institutions, that being Colonial Williamsburg. Now, Williamsburg served as the capital of the Virginia colony for most of the 1700s. It was a center of political activity before and during the American Revolution from 1775 to 1783 where many well-known founding fathers such as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Patrick Henry debated taxes, slavery, and the inalienable rights of men. According to their website, as well as discussive articles by author Anders Greenspan, Colonial Williamsburg was the creation of Reverend William Arthur Rutherford Goodwin. Reverend Goodwin sought out John D. Rockefeller Jr. to help fund the project, who was the son of the famous business magnate and philanthropist John D. Rockefeller. Restoration involved 85% of Williamsburg's original 18th century area, with more than 700 buildings that post-dated 1790 being demolished. Many aspects of social history, particularly the role of African Americans in Williamsburg, were not examined until the 1970s and 1980s. Also missing was an awareness of the role that women played in the 18th century town. With such emphasis on wealthy white men, Colonial Williamsburg presented a point of view that many modern historians regard as markedly insufficient. As Greenspan describes early on, it came to represent a kind of symbiosis between those suffering the brunt of the Great Depression and those who had endured the hardships of the American Revolution a century and a half earlier. People were urged to make pilgrimages to the shrine for inspiration during the bleak years of the 1930s further reinforcing the Restoration's curative powers on a nation that had lost direction. Colonial Williamsburg served a similar purpose during World War II and then the Cold War. In the 1950s, John D. Rockefeller III promoted a quote-unquote dynamic Americanism, which sought not only to educate against the evils of communism, but also to promote American ideals of democracy and republican government around the world. Although Rockefeller eventually resigned as chairman of the board, his dynamic vision of the project took hold. And in this way, a visitor center was built, buses began to transport passengers to the downtown historic district, and it emerged as a popular tourist direction for history seekers as well as world leaders like Winston Churchill and Queen Elizabeth II. By late in the 1960s and early in the 1970s, programming at Colonial Williamsburg still did not reflect a sophisticated understanding of the many different groups that had once inhabited the former capital, those being men, women, blacks, whites, Indians, slaves. In 1978, Colonial Williamsburg moved to present an updated and more socially oriented version of colonial history through the guidance of Harvard-educated historian Carrie Carson one of the programs instituted by carson was known as according to the ladies which introduced visitors to the lives of williamsburg women historical interpreters began to portray slaves for the first time and in nineteen eighty eight slave cabins were reassembled at carter's grove an eighteenth-century plantation rex ellis the assistant director of african-american interpretation told the new york times we're going to have to show rebellion, violence, and racism in a way that we haven't done at Williamsburg, End quote. As a result of this, however, attendance heavily dropped during the 1990s and early 2000s as the programming began to be viewed as non-family friendly. The project's response to this new crisis was the Revolutionary City, which in a form of street theater... Historical Interpreters portray social and political events in Williamsburg, centralizing the program around the years 1774 to 1781. Greenspan notes that modern colonial Williamsburg tells a more complete story of the 18th century than it did in the early days. Though it no longer exactly mirrors the dreams of its founders, it provides the modern visitor with a fuller educational experience, one that lets them better appreciate the men and women who helped forge the United States. Today, Williamsburg is known internationally as the premier center for the preservation and interpretation of American colonial history. It is, in fact, the world's largest living history museum. According to the institution, it has more than 40 historic sites and trades, four historic taverns, and two world-class art museums, one of which is the oldest continuous-running folk art museum in the world. Colonial Williamsburg's historic area houses today have been restored and historically preserved, 88 of which are all originals. As well as this, a plethora of interactive activities are made available including a musket range, carriage rides, blacksmithing, gunsmithing, weaving, trial for treason, as well as concerts of 18th century music. The artisans here are not actors, but rather full-time practitioners of their trades, who provide their goods and services for not only the visitors to the site, but also institutions around the world. Reenactments are done on a constant basis by historical interpreters of nearly one dozen historical figures, including George Washington, James Madison, and Thomas Jefferson, as well as numerous other revolutionaries. These interpreters serve a crucial function in the education at Colonial Williamsburg because, while only students of these subjects or historians may be deeply interested in every detail, the interpreters here are capable of compressing the events into a whole comprehensive experience coloring and dramatizing it in order to make lasting impressions. This touches upon the principles of Freeman Tilden, that it is of great importance to present the visitor with a whole rather than just a part. It's evident that many historical sites and cultural institutions have an intrinsic aesthetic appeal, yet few can be truly appreciated without some explanation of who lived there or what occurred there. With that being said, It is the reincarnation of the historic structures and the interpreters reenacting 18th century life that has cemented Colonial Williamsburg as a landmark in the American historic preservation movement. So many of the conversations and performances at Colonial Williamsburg include information about those who were largely ignored by history, thus providing the public with an understanding of particular people and events that have so often been overlooked, or subjects that are thought of as controversial. It's of course important to face the reality of many historical events, even if they're somewhat uncomfortable to talk about. Greenspan expresses that colonial Williamsburg in its completeness serves as a self-conscious shrine of American ideals. The history and legacy of slavery once downplayed at Williamsburg is now dealt with openly. Interpreters are both white and African-American, but the focus remains on what the site's originators call "healthful information about democracy, freedom, and representative government. Colonial Williamsburg's mission is to help the future learn from the past by preserving, restoring, and presenting 18th century Williamsburg and by engaging, informing, and inspiring people as they learn about this historic capital, the events that occurred here, and the diverse people who helped shape America.
0: And another very popular American living history museum in the United States is the Henry Ford's Greenfield Village. This institution was opened in 1929 and it is a culmination of different buildings spanning hundreds of years of American history. Presently in many of the homes and shops different crafts are enacted by interpreters dressed according to the historic period. They enact broom making, candle dipping, tin smithing, pewter work, relief pressing and several other crafts that span American history pre-20th century. Overall, the mission of the Henry Ford is to provide unique educational experiences based on authentic objects, stories, and lives from America's traditions of ingenuity, resourcefulness, and innovation. To quote them, Our purpose is to inspire people to learn from these traditions to help shape a better future. The institution was founded by Henry Ford. Henry Ford was a prominent industrialist and entrepreneur. He pioneered the assembly line, which defined American industry and global industries up until the present, throughout the 20th century into now. And Henry Ford had a complicated history with this industry. Henry Ford is known for having nostalgia for his childhood, his experiences growing up on a rural farm and going to rural schoolhouses. The small-town America that he knew changed greatly because of the industry that he propagated. In the mid-19th century, one of the most common careers for Americans was to be a farmer, to work in a craft. But by the mid-20th century, a 100 years later, this changed significantly. Now people worked in factories. They worked on these assembly lines which Ford pioneered, sometimes working for his company and he wanted to preserve pre-20th century America in the way that he saw it. He had a vision of what he felt was worth preserving. So by the early 20th century before the museum opened, he hired a variety of collectors to, quote, buy one of everything. He wanted to collect histories of honestly great white men who defined American industry and innovation as stated by their even current mission statement, and he had these buildings moved to Dearborn, Michigan, where the site lived then and currently lives. At the site, he created an image of progress and nostalgia, of industry and agriculture where they could exist harmoniously. However, the museum did not adopt living history until the early 1980s. The original plan had tour guides, These tour guides often revered Edison and Ford. And these approaches that they used were surprisingly aligned with modern interpretation standards. To quote one of their manuals, This talk is not intended to be memorized and given before each group. Rather, it is to guide you in organizing your own talk from the material presented. To keep your talk interesting, you must be interested in what you are saying. Keep your interest fresh, by rearranging and reorganizing your talk frequently, use new phrases and new materials. This approach also differentiated between children and adult tours. And this was before Tilden even. So they in fact were keeping up with modern interpretation standards early on, although they were not performing living history, and although they were not discussing the histories of all Americans. Village events in 1951 were, however, some of the first living history examples with reenactments of famous events. And, however, overall, the museum was really just late to living history. Museums across the country were already pursuing it, such as Colonial Williamsburg. It wasn't until Harry K. Scramstad became president of the museum in 1981 that living history programs became a breathing part of the institution. He also implemented checks on historical accuracy and created an African-American family life program. He wanted to remove the nostalgia and replace it with more reality, recognizing the more troubling aspects of American history, despite it being uncomfortable for some visitors. He also just wanted to better contextualize the sites. For example, the Carousel was not just a fun activity, but now a reflection of American pastime and leisure. In 1982, the Saltbox House and Edison Home were the first sites used for living history demonstrations of domestic life. These discussed how technology affected the lives of men, women, and children. And to accompany these living history practices and sites, the institution developed a library with materials on interpretation. These included a 1983 manual with Tilden's Principles, guidelines on historic sites from the American Association of State and Local History, works on communication theory, and many more important works. They even found a way to handle and address Ford's anti-Semitism. Henry Ford was involved with the Nazi Party in Germany in the 1940s. To quote their response, We're sorry to say that this was indeed true. Although he did have some Jewish colleagues that he respected, Henry Ford had an utterly crazy belief in a Jewish conspiracy to take over the world. Even in his own day, Ford's ideas never really took hold in the United States. Henry Ford's son and grandson did much to transform Ford Motor Company into a more tolerant organization and to establish ties with the Jewish community. But unfortunately, this legacy lives on. Today, this kind of behavior by someone of Henry Ford's stature would be highly inconceivable. Now, this response does deflect to one degree by stating, although he did have some Jewish colleagues that he respected, in a way it sort of tries to excuse his behavior and his belief system, which is not appropriate. But what we see here is an attempt to address and confront these difficult aspects that existed within the institution, which was deeply whitewashed and paternalized and Scramstad intended to make these sites more contextualized. For example, Firestone Farm, instead of focusing on the great man, the founder of the Firestone Tire Manufacturer, focused now on middle-class life in the 19th century. Firestone Farm is now a site where interpreters as living historians carry out the work of a 19th century farm. This includes managing livestock, plowing fields, harvesting crops, Cooking dinners, all to educate and entertain a way of life that was common for many Americans pre-industrialization. Also, the African American Family Life Program led to several other developments in interpreting the history of black people in America. The slave quarters were renamed the Hermitage Cabins, and used non-costume staff now to confront difficult histories of enslaved people. In 1985, in Interpreter portrayed the abolitionist Abigail Kelly at Old Sturbridge Village in Massachusetts. So, this practice of confronting these histories was very thematic across the United States, and Greenfield Village found itself within that innovation and within that change. Another example of this change happened in 1988 when the Susquehanna Plantation reopened. Originally, since the 1940s, this site focused on a 17th century planter, but in truth, This building dated back to the antebellum period in the 19th century, and it was a plantation which relied on slave labor for cotton. Interpreters used third-person perspectives, whilst being living historians, to outline how African Americans built the home. Overall, the reinterpreted Hermitage Cabins, Susquehanna Plantation, and even the Maddox House, which opened in 1991, aiming to illustrate the lives of just ordinary black people in America, aimed to provide a more diverse and truer narrative to what these sites represented and better contextualize them. Partially, the motivations behind this was to attract an alienated black community in Detroit and Metro Detroit since Dearborn was known for being a very white city at the time and had an outspokenly racist mayor. However, statistics did demonstrate that this was barely effective in the 1980s and 1990s although a step in a more contextualized direction. And it is true that the response from white visitors was rather meager. For example, at the Hermitage cabins, visitors identified with the material objects in the cabins, not so much the conditions of poverty and racial strife. It was difficult for visitors to respond to shifting gears in the narrative. To quote Jesse Swigger, Life was grim for most Americans, but most Americans were not depicted on Greenfield Village's landscape. It is a celebratory place for success and innovation, but that is not the story of American history solely. Many common folk lived and suffered, or failed in their enterprise. Do these stories not speak to American history? Are they irrelevant? Scramstad left in 1996, and with that, new directors had focused on what the visitors wanted drawing from places like Disneyland as inspiration. This put the new history paradigm in the backseat, and the interpretive content has been about the same since Scramstad left. On a plus, since the 1970s, the diversity of the visitors is more reflective of the Detroit populace. However, this does not mean that the site represents these populations and tells their stories within this narrative of innovation and perseverance, despite their ancestors' efforts and accomplishments. Living history at the institution has drifted away from developing scholarship to focus on maintaining sites and interacting with visitors in an entertaining, fun way. Which is a problem, for it doesn't demonstrate all the diverse histories that lived and breathed at the sites that this institution represents. Also, the nostalgic and paternal narrative is still there. This is not inherent to living history itself, as seen through Colonial Williamsburg's developments but to the site itself, which held these characteristics well before living history was introduced even. The Henry Ford itself does intertwine and confront non-paternal narratives to some extent in the museum itself, not so much at Greenfield Village. But even to some extent, these places are in a context of progress, such as the Rosa Park bus. Although this was a momentous event in history and changed the United States greatly, the museum places this within a narrative of perpetual growth and progress. Which is counter to how history truly presents itself. It's an ahistorical perspective and misleading to visitors. And that is ultimately what is holding Greenfield Village back despite its many merits.
1: In addition to these large institutions such as Colonial Williamsburg or the Henry Ford, there also exist a variety of much smaller institutions within the individual states. One of these is Charlton Park in Hastings, Michigan, often referred to as the Jewel of Berry County. According to their website, it was established in 1936 by Irving D. Charlton. Museum construction began in 1944 and ended in 1950, and it is now known as the Irving D. Charlton Memorial Museum. The museum, as well as the entire site in general, depicts the day-to-day life of the early inhabitants of Berry County. The institution describes that Charlton began collecting items so future generations might understand the difficult tasks that early inhabitants of Berry County performed without the benefit of powered equipment. Upon his death in 1963, Charlton bequeathed this collection of items to historic Charleston Park, which included an assortment of agricultural equipment, domestic items, musical instruments, lighting and communication artifacts, basketry, and textiles. It is estimated that at the time of his death he had accumulated an assemblage of approximately 100,000 artifacts. The institution recounts that during the second period of collecting from 1967 until 1989, Berry County buildings and artifacts were added to the collection to support the creation of the historic village. These buildings provided areas to display and store Charlton's original collection. From 1989 to the present, Historic Charlton Park collects items of Berry County in Michigan history that fall in the years between 1850 and 1930. Charlton's collection preserves for future generations a rich heritage in the Berry County's testament to an earlier time. Buildings moved throughout Berry County comprise a variety of trades, including a barber shop, blacksmith shop, inn, church, carpenter shop, gas and steam barn, steam-powered sawmill, general store, etc. The institution provides walking tours for visitors as well as guided tours done by knowledgeable historical interpreters, who provide a variety of educational programs, many of which are directed towards students. These include a live-in, which gives students a chance to experience the life of a child at the turn of the century, as well as experiences on the farm during the late 1800s, experiences at the general store that have to do with merchandise and barter and trade, as well as one-room schoolhouse experiences where students receive lessons using slates in order to understand some of the differences between the schools in the 1800s and theirs. This is all directly correlated with Tilden's sixth principle discussed in our first episode that education for children should follow a fundamentally different approach. The education at Historic Charlton Park utilizes the buildings in order to bring history alive for students. They are effectively able to see listen, touch, smell, and hear their way through history, which makes for a much more dynamic, interactive experience. And the final place that we're going to explore is in America's
0: southwest. This site is called El Rancho de las Golondrinas, and it explores the history and culture of Hispano people in that region. What are Hispano people? Well, this is a group of Latino individuals who identify with their Spanish roots, and are deeply diverse. There's not one set of cultural traditions that define Nuevo Mexicanos individuals. For example, uh, the culture in New Mexico early on was more inclusive of Native Americans than other colonial enterprises, as many married into Spanish families, and therefore individuals can trace their ancestry to this time. So there are some Hispano people who are strictly in line with their Spanish roots, but then there's several that are tied to Native American and Pueblo traditions in the region. So that just examines how, to some extent, this culture is deeply diverse. However, there is a sort of unity within this culture, and this dates back to the mid-20th century. Civil rights in the 1960s greatly influenced Latino and Mexican pride in the United States as the persecution and discrimination against non-white groups was confronted. And this culture became further promulgated, now by the government, in the 1980s and 1990s, which saw New Mexico appropriate Hispanic culture for economic development. By the 1990s, Anglos became the most prominent race in the region, and gentrification, unfortunately, pursued at the cost of Hispano under unemployment and economic distress. So to some extent, scholars argue that this inspired the preservation and motivations to maintain this Hispano culture, which some believed was fading. And these motivations were as diverse as the culture itself. Some learned of their culture throughout their life. It was present since the day they were born. Some rediscovered it. And some believed, as mentioned earlier, that it was vanishing and felt that it needed to be revived, which is in fact untrue. It had been persevering since it had existed initially, but that motivation was still very real. Overall, preservation, appropriation, and commodification are all parts of this complex cultural mosaic in New Mexico. Culture is a constantly changing set of strategies on how to live the Latin root cult means to grow. Therefore, the tradition and culture of people in New Mexico, the Hispano people, has changed over time and continues to. Nonetheless, these collective experiences drive this cultural identity and interest in preservation. Tourism regarding Hispano culture was deeply pushed originally in the 1940s by the New Deal. However, this created a paternal narrative which belittled Nuevo Mexicanos by trying to preserve villages in a static way, not in an ever-adapting way, as we explained earlier. A variety of opportunities in contemporary times now preserve Nuevo Mexicano in a way that allows it to continue to evolve and express its complexities. One institution that does this is El Rancho de las Colendrinas. El Rancho de las Colendrinas, just south of Santa Fe, is a living history museum that brings alive Spanish colonial times. With its collection of 18th and 19th century haciendas, molinos, blacksmith and wheelwright shops, and religious sites and artifacts, such as penitente Morada, Descansos, and Camposanto, El Rancho de las Golondrinas offers an innovative opportunity to experience Spanish colonial life. The museum's mission is to preserve the legacy and the land of Hispano traditions. It takes place on a historic rancho, which was a rest stop for travelers on the Camino Real, the road which went from Santa Fe to New Mexico. It was a place for trade as well, not just rest. The museum opened in 1972 due to the efforts of Leonora Curtin, who began restoring the land with her husband. It is dedicated to the history, heritage, and culture of 18th and 19th century New Mexico, as mentioned earlier. And the site hosts several festivals every year, with the exception for this year due to the pandemic. Guided tours and school groups are available. These are linked with activities which mainly explore crafts such as bread baking in a clay oven, wool carding, candle making, etc., which link to the museum's mission. Non-craft topics range from aqueducts to the history of tin work. New Mexico Heritage Days are geared just towards that, for students learn to explore these facets with a variety of educational workshops led by living history interpreters. The museum also hosts a wide variety of virtual learning opportunities through their website. Now, this all sounds like a stagnant representation. This is the Hispano tradition of the past, but it's important to recognize that El Rancho de las Contrinas, as I mentioned earlier, does in fact represent the constantly evolving and growth of Hispano culture and traditions. One particular way in which they promulgate this is through the encouragement of culture textile traditions. cultura textile decoration originated in New Mexico under Spanish influence. This was revived by Hispanos in the region, who seeked to continue its traditions, Now, this could be a response to the increased presence of Anglo culture, or it could just be an internal carrying on of such a tradition, but it greatly increased in the 20th century. And El Rancho de las Golondrinas is a location where this practice is done through living history interpreters. This form of embroidery serves to the collective cultural identity of this group of individuals in northern New Mexico. It also serves as a popular art piece at local markets, and can fetch quite a bit of money as a popular form of folk art. For example, decorations such as flowers, birds, butterflies, and fruits alongside depictions of the Virgin of Guadalupe or the Santo Nino of Atocha adorn shawls, wall hangings, and pillows, in addition to bedspreads and altar cloths. All these facets of cultural tradition resonate through these artworks, once practical solutions to cover up woolen ground cloth and to aestheticize. This demonstrates cultural persistence and the refusal to erase the deeply Hispanic identity tied to the region. One such interpreter is Julia Gomez, who is a retired school teacher and culture artist who volunteers at El Rancho de las Colentrinas, where she uses this textile tradition to educate on this shared cultural tradition. Here, they shear the sheep and skirt the wool used to create the textile and embroidery. The whole process, including the spinning of the wool on a malacate, is demonstrated. Gomez also talks about the resourcefulness of Spanish colonial settlers. This is, however, not all about tradition. Gomez actively seeks for innovators in the culture tradition who are pushing it forward with contemporary techniques and contemporary designs. And perhaps this ensures the proliferation of this older practice into the present. And overall, living history interpreters ensure that not only do people remember stagnant representations of the past, or recognize that culture is ever-evolving and Hispano-culture in itself and its many facets diverse and will continue to change and live on as it
1: always has one way in which these living history institutions succeed is noted by author donald ritchie in a guide to oral history in which he describes that historians and in this case living historians have helped in an enormous way to broaden the traditional notions of what constitutes a community's history by not only analyzing it in terms of political and institutional structures, but also ethnic, economical, and occupational components, as Jacob outlined in his description of El Rancho de las Colondrinas. This functions in many different capacities, as all too often the narrative has been changed when discussing important histories in an effort to make the information less uncomfortable and whitewash the historical record. Living history has the capacity to change this. Additionally, living history projects have long been able to preserve quote unquote lost information by presenting acutely researched information about topics that have disappeared with the exception of certain people's memories. As we've discussed, a great deal of living history involves reenactment, and so, living history and those who participate in it have the unique ability to capture specific times or events and reveal the impacts they had on their respective areas. It's important to come to terms with the impact that certain events have had on the way we live today. And contrarily, it's meaningful to understand that in some regards, things are not that different today than they were in the past. And although living history
0: museums, as Gray mentioned, have a potential to confront whitewashed histories and better contextualize these, oftentimes this is not the case. And that's a way in which living history museums can greatly grow. Institutions such as Colonial Williamsburg and El Rancho de las Colandrinas represent contextualized histories of the people who lived at their institutions and don't try to whitewash the record to make it more comfortable for visitors. Whilst at sites like Greenfield Village, where they segregate the history of Black America from White America, when in fact it was very intertwined with one another, and sites like historic Charlton Park, which don't explore the history of black Americans whatsoever, do not confront these histories, and instead represent a more traditional whitewash narrative, a comfortable narrative, so that they can focus on entertaining their guests, not provoking them. And when one looks at the TOR model from episode one, the level of importance goes like this. It's theme, organization, relevance, and then entertainment. And the theme is that context. You know, what thematically is important about these living history sites? What's important about this historic home? And thematically, a lot of times, that takes, that takes the back seat. And entertainment is put first. And this is a problem because as a result, this, to some extent, is the reason why the record is so whitewashed and why certain people's histories are either not being told or are being told very separately, when in fact they were intertwined and always a part of these sites that are being explored and displayed. And while it is true that not every African American in the United States wants to suit up and relive the trauma of their ancestors, some are up to this task. And this is important because 72% of all museum employees are white as of 2018. And It's important that museums as cultural institutions that really validate culture and represent cultures and are things that people hold dear to their identity. It is important that they represent the population which this nation represents, that this nation is made up of. And maybe that is a patriotic perspective to throw into this, but... Ultimately, at a site like Greenfield Village or historic Charlton Park, they're emblems of an identity that is one that is tied to a nation. And it has to contextualize that. And not put theme on the back seat so that all people's stories are told and welcome. So, Gray, now that we've talked about all these institutions and thought of ways in which it can grow in ways in which it succeeds. Do you have any visions maybe for the future of American living history museums and uh, maybe techniques they
1: can use, maybe be a little imaginative about it? Well, I think one important thing to note is that living history projects in general cannot expect the same response from every given group. For that reason, I think that the practice of living history will be best suited to approach the desires of the audience at hand while still delivering the necessary information in an appropriate manner. Because so many of these institutions place a dependence on just entertainment or just historical accuracy. And I think that striking a balance between these two things will allow the practice to grow most expeditiously. And when more sites are able to compound their programs to reflect both techniques, I think that the practice will really thrive.
0: Thank you for listening to the Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour podcast. If you wish to learn more about the episode and topic, please visit kalamazoomuseum.org podcast for bibliography, notes, episode transcripts, and other behind-the-scenes content. Due to a COVID-19 stay-at-home order, the museum is currently closed until further notice. Until then, stay
1: safe and healthy, and visit us in two weeks when we will talk about children's museums.